This is Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. On this episode of Grain IQ, we're starting at the beginning, before there were futures contracts and the concept of basis, before there were grain elevators, and even before the Chicago Board of Trade, before any of that was a farmer trying to sell his grain to make money. We're joined today by Ed Usson. He is a grain marketing economist for the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota. Ed, thanks for joining us on Grain IQ. Thank you for inviting me along, and uh, I hope I can share some nuggets of information for your listeners. So we're going to dive into the very beginning of grain marketing, but before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ed. You've been involved in the grain marketing industry in a number of ways, right? Uh, I'm a grain market economist at the University of Minnesota, but I'm not a lifer at the U of M. I worked in private industry. I traded in the pit of the Minneapolis Grain Exchange all through the 80s. I was a wheat buyer for flour mills, but now I've been with the university over 20 years. I teach courses on commodity markets and another course on futures and options markets. I've written a book titled Grain Marketing is Simple. It's just not easy. I've also created a number of uh, workshops that I've taken around the country uh, winning the game might be familiar to some. I know it's going to be familiar to people in Nebraska. Uh, I also travel and speak on the topic of markets uh, too often. Well, uh, you've got some great expertise and experience and a lot of knowledge, and that's kind of why we're uh, tapping your brain here on this uh, series of podcasts here. So let's start as far back as we know, the beginning of grain marketing, before there were grain elevators, before there was a CBOT or anything like that. How was grain marketed initially, Ed? Well, I don't know if I can take myself back that far, Chad, but I know it was... uh... I know that if you think about the modern era of grain marketing or the evolution of that, it really came about with the canal building era in the 1800s, where we were building first the Erie Canal, which sort of connected the Great Lakes down to the population centers in New York, and uh, and then the Illinois-Michigan Canal in the city of Chicago, which connected if you will, the abundance of the Corn Belt to the Great Lakes and then through the Great Lakes to the population centers on the East Coast. Uh, Trade was much different then, a lot of horses, a lot of sleds in the winter and so on. Uh, But the abundance of the Corn Belt made itself clear very early. So if uh, the canal building was kind of the nexus about this, uh, the railroads had to have played a part in it too at some point, right? Oh, absolutely. But the railroads came along a little later, uh, two decades later, and that, of course, became very important. But, you know, for many decades, uh, water was the primary movement of grain. But absolutely, railroads are a big part of it now. And today, trucks equally so. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to a prior job that I had in northern Minnesota where we uh, I lived along one of those pipelines, if you will. It was the northern Minnesota wheat trail that brought a lot of spring wheat from northern Minnesota uh, right to a railroad point that is now the Burlington Northern Santa Fe. But like you say, it uh, it was the beginnings of those corridors to bring things to a common point where they could be loaded and uh, shipped and utilized elsewhere. Huh? Yes. 
Yes, uh, the Great Lakes have played a big role um, in the movement of grain in the U.S. and worldwide. They play a much smaller role today because uh, the Gulf ports and the West Coast ports dominate grain shipment now. This was all prior to the creation of the Chicago Board of Trade, or as we know it, CBOT. In 1848, the CBOT was founded as a cash market for grain. The forward contracts, which we'll talk about later, they began trading at the CBOT almost immediately. The Chicago Board of Trade is now owned by the CME Group. So, Ed, take me back to the beginnings of the CBOT. Well, it goes back to... uh really around the year 1850, I think it's 1848 when the uh, the uh, canal opened up that connected the Illinois River to the Great Lakes. You had a problem then. You had a very rudimentary grain industry, a lot of small players along the river. A lot of grain would move in the winter uh, by sled. The Great Lakes, of course, would freeze up in the winter. You had small grain elevators, independently owned, and they had a problem. They had two problems. One, they're buying grain, and at that time, it's oats, corn, and wheat. And by the way, Chad, no one thinks about oats, but it's the original biofuel. Every farmer grew oats because that's what the horses ate, and they pulled the plow. So it was corn, oats, and wheat. Uh, They have two problems. Where do you get the capital to buy this grain? that you're going to store for a while. The other problem is you're paying uh, you're paying a dollar a bushel, say. How do you know it's worth that when the lakes open up again, again the next spring? So they had a price risk. And out of that started the trading of what they called time tra- contracts, very rudimentary forward contracts. And, uh, Chad, we have to use our imagination and imagine the bars in the uh, – uh, budding cow town of Chicago, and uh, these independent grain dealers uh, lamenting their problems over a beer, and someone who has contacts, say, on the East Coast where the population is, saying, you know, I think I think corn will be worth more in the spring, and they're trading grain. They start to trade these rudimentary time contracts, and from that evolved the futures market. So tell me, uh, you know, when it actually got started as uh, its own entity, you know, how is it structured? Um, Who are the players and kind of what did it do? Well, uh, the Board of Trade, I think, goes back to about 1875. Those were the first futures contracts. And probably the biggest uh, invention, development, uh, creative idea was the development of the clearinghouse at the uh, Board of Trade. And the clearinghouse essentially steps between the buyer and the seller in the pit. And if you and I were to trade, Chad, you're buying, I'm selling. The clearinghouse at the end of the day steps between us. You didn't buy from me. You bought from the clearinghouse. I didn't sell to you. I sold to the clearinghouse. Uh, That did two things. First of all, the clearinghouse uh, a marks to market every day. So when the, you, know, you bought, I sold, the market went up, it's going to give you money and take money from me. Keeps us marked to market every day. 
And uh, another big point is because the clearinghouse steps between us, if you want to get out of your long position, Chad, you don't have to find me. You know, if we're if we're doing a forward contract, if you and I have a cash contract and you don't want to fulfill your end of the deal, you got to talk to me. Well, with futures trading in the clearinghouse, you don't have to talk to me. You've bought. All you need to do is sell an equal amount to anyone else in the pit, and you're out of that transaction. And that, you know, you think, well, okay, big deal. Well, that was a big deal because now you've opened up the market to speculation and speculators, which is an important part of the market. I know the speculation is a four-letter word to some people, but you need speculators. Uh, the late, great T. Boone Pickens once said, something on the order of if a market needs hedgers and speculators. If you don't have one, you don't have a market. And the clearinghouse and the board of trade opened it up to speculators, people who are taking the risks freely. And uh, it was an important part of the evolution of futures trading. So when that developed, when you when you had a pit, when you had traders, the clearinghouse, how did that impact local farmers? What did that allow them to do? How did that impact how they could do business? Well, they now had a pricing mechanism, an easy, quick, useful pricing mechanism. Not only did they have a pricing mechanism, and they didn't have to use the market to price their grain because the grain elevator could use the market and offer them forward contracts, you know, prices for delivery today, prices for delivery a month out, prices for delivery on new crop, eight months out, whatever. It opened it up that way. It also made for a tremendous amount of information. I mean, look at today, Chad. People are thinking about the nearby price of soybeans, you know, $15 a bushel or something, or new crop soybeans over $13 a bushel. Chad, I can give you a quote on uh, on soybeans delivered in the harvest of 2025. There's a lot of market information out there right now. And that's a good thing for producers to have that information. I'm just thinking about uh, back when this was all developing, you know, this was even before uh, radio and, and, and TV and um, cell phones, modern forms of communication. I wonder how that information was disseminated from the trading pits and the, and the clearing houses to the local elevators and the, eventually to the farmers, Ed. Well, it was a lot slower. They did have wires. They could get information out there. But it was a more difficult thing. The information flow was not as easy. Uh, you had at that time, and I'm going back well over 100 years, and even up through 50, 60 years ago, you had well-developed cash markets where buyers and sellers of cash wheat and cash corn and oats would gather to physically look at samples and exchange information. And part of the reason those cash markets were so important was just the getting together physically of buyers and sellers who, who needed to talk to each other to express their interest in buying or selling. And of course, as communications improved, you know, telephones and, and just communications in general improved and 
and the grading system matured and got better, those cash markets are pretty much all gone by the wayside. In fact, they've been gone for two decades. Uh, that need to physically gather is no longer there. Ed, you kind of hit my next question. My next question was, how has the Chicago Board of Trade uh, changed and adapted over time? If you take us from kind of those beginnings of the, the pit and the clearinghouse and as that has developed, how has the futures trade adapted to how agriculture and the world has changed and, do, and does business? Well, in agriculture, one thing we've seen over the last three decades, a uh, couple of things. First of all, the reintroduction of options trading and options contracts. Uh, way back in the 30s, I believe it was an early regulatory reform was passed that banned options trading. And they remained banned in U.S. markets until the 80s when they came back. I was at the Minneapolis Grain Exchange when we wrote the spring wheat options contract. And they've been a big success. The other thing that's happened in agriculture is uh, the development of agricultural futures and options markets in other countries. China, uh, Brazil, they have their own soybean and corn markets. A varying success, some of them quite successful, some of them less so. But, you know, the, the use of futures and options in price risk management is really very similar today that it was 100 years ago. Maybe one of the other changes, and you kind of mentioned it too, with the initial grains that were included in those clearinghouses back uh, at the beginning, uh, there are new and different commodities that are traded today versus back at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? The big change is not in agriculture. <laughs> it's outside of agriculture. It is other commodities, interest rate futures, uh, metals, currencies, energy futures, you know, oil and gas, etc. That has been the growth of futures trading over the last uh, 30 years. Agriculture is still important. Uh, there are some new agricultural contracts, although it's a, a story, it, it's a podcast unto itself. All of the ag contracts that have been tried over the last 30 years and really haven't taken off. I'll give you some examples. You would think uh, with the growth of ethanol throughout the country, it's a big, big player in the world of corn, you would think that the DDG futures market introduced a decade ago by the CME group or the ethanol futures contract introduced over a decade ago by the CME group, they'd be big successes, right? Eh, take a look at them, Chad. They don't trade. You know, it's, it's a, a topic unto itself. Why do some contracts make it and some don't? Now, one uh, change that I think that you witnessed, too, uh, when you were in the business, this change from uh, pit trading to now we are, uh, for the most part, electronic trade. Uh, maybe the same things are happening, but just in a different way, huh, Ed? It's just a different format. And, you know, I used to be a pit trader. It hurts me a bit that it's gone. I enjoyed it. I, I don't know anyone who did not enjoy it. 
I thought it was a very fair and efficient system. But you know what? Electronic trading is, uh, from what I can see, just as fair and even more efficient. Uh, the pit traders lamented the uh, introduction of uh, electronic trading, but there's a lot of retail brokers and other people out there who didn't mind it at all. Uh, it's much easier to manage order flows and paper through the electronic system than it ever was in the pit, even though the pit was really good and, and very efficient. Electronic trading is even more efficient. Ed, we're wrapping up this week's episode on the history of grain marketing. Before we do that, though, take us up to where we sit now and where we might be going in the future of grain marketing. Grain marketing, as you've alluded to, continues to be relevant, and it continues to evolve to serve the farmers and the public, right? Yes. Um, futures trading is here to stay because it serves a purpose. It serves a real economic purpose. Uh, I fight this some. You get this sense people are like, well, this is just a, a game for speculators. And uh, I like to uh, tell my students and others, there's a difference between speculation and gambling. Gambling, even though the language of gambling has infected the speculation side and the grain markets. You know, if you, Chad, if you were to buy corn futures today, some, one of your buddies would say, uh, oh, you're, you're betting on higher corn prices. Okay, we, we use the language of gambling. But here's the difference. Gambling deals with risks that aren't necessarily real. We kind of make them up. Speculation deals with risks in grain markets and other commodity markets that are real. Soybean prices go up and down based on, well, lately, weather in South America. Those risks are real. The question becomes, who's gonna take that risk? Hedgers want to avoid it. They lay off the risk. Speculators take it. So is that gambling? No. I think we're better off thinking about the speculative side of grain markets as uh, uh, entrepreneurs taking risks. And we all value that in our society. Ed, it's been good to have you on this episode. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. That was Ed Usset, grain marketing economist for the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota. I'm Chad Moyer. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Grain IQ. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Saklocha. It is written and edited by Alex Wojcicki. Our project manager is Bryce Duskett. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.